Hello, amazing, beautiful ladies. You are listening to the Igbo Women's Initiative podcast with Ugochi Onyewu. I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Igbo Initiative podcast, where we celebrate all things Igbo. We speak to amazing women in different walks of life who are either Igbo or who are friends of Igbo culture. I am really excited about this episode's guest and I loved chatting to her. I really did not want our discussion to end. Zim Ugochukwu is the founder and former CEO of Travel Noir. Travel Noir was founded with one lofty goal in mind, to make international travel more inclusive and representative of explorers of color, in turn inspiring them to frequently explore new destinations. Travel Noir was named one of the most innovative companies in the world by Fast Company. In 2017, Travel Noir was acquired by Blavity. At the time of sale, the company reached over 2 million travelers a month. Prior to Travel Noir at 19 years old, Zim cloned a gene with similarities to a genetic disorder. She also became the youngest precinct judge for the state of North Carolina. Her love for solving tough problems and her knack for building communities on and offline has led her to critical acclaim. In addition, Zim ran a national anti-tobacco campaign, helped open a civil rights museum and traveled through 90% of Asia. This Forbes 30 Under 30 awardee has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, CBS This Morning, L, The Nation, Essence and NPR, among others, and was recognized by Glamour magazine as one of 25 young women changing the world. She was named as one of Oprah Winfrey's Super 100 Soul Leaders. She has lived in cities around the world, including New Delhi, Dharamshala, and San Francisco. In this episode, we discuss Zim's incredible journey and sense of adventure, We discuss what is next for Zim and her desire to live a life submitted to the will of God. Hi, Zim. Thank you so much for joining. I know you're super busy and I'm really excited to speak to you today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Of course, of course. So I've introduced you to the audience and I'm sure a lot of people know about you. And I'm really excited for you to maybe just start off the conversation, telling us a little bit about life growing up. Give us a little bit of background. Let's get to know you a little bit. Sure, sure. So I grew up uh, in a traditional and untraditional way. So my mother and father, um, both from Nigeria, were uh, in an arranged marriage. So Hmm. I grew up in Minnesota. And one day, my dad uh, ended up bringing home a weapon. Wow. And my mom was like, you know, no way. My brother and I, we were one and one and a half, two at the time. So on his next uh, business trip to Nigeria, she um, she made a run for it. Wow. She went down, uh, we, we went down uh, to Texas and over to California. We had one cousin in the U.S. at the time. This was the late 80s. And um, so I spent time kind of hopping around um, the U.S. with my mom and my brother and 
And that kind of sense of an adventurous spirit, if you will, yeah. uh, was born was born then. So I grew up um, in Minnesota, and at the time, this was before um, the there was a large immigration um, of uh, East Africans. So mm-hmm. in the mid mid nineties, mm-hmm. um, there was a large uh, immigration uh, effort. Uh, from East Africa over to the U.S. People settled in Minnesota. But before mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't very many uh, people of color, right. weren't very many black black people. Right. And so I, I grew up um, often being the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my name is Zimuza, but I shortened it to Zim because mm-hmm. nobody could pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had an adventurous childhood back then. We could roam the streets if we wanted to. Uh, my mom worked a seven to seven job. So a lot of times she would get us dressed before school. We moved to an apartment complex that was a block away from where we went to school. So she would get us dressed. She would prepare breakfast. She would leave and go to work. So when we woke up, we would already have the clothes on our body and we would have food prepared and we would just walk out of the door and go to school. Wow. And that was how we got by. And so, you know, my childhood was quite adventurous. As I mentioned, (laughs) we, um, we did a lot of exploring me and my motley crew of friends Mm. and my brother. Um, and, uh, it's late nineties when I was about eight or so, eight or nine, we moved to, um, uh, North Carolina. We moved to North Carolina. My mom had just gotten a job with Duke uh, Duke University Hospital mm-hmm. um, or Duke Hospital System, and so we, um, you know, I I continued to grow up there. Went to middle school, high school there, mm-hmm. um, and was a misfit. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> I had gone from being this kid that was an outlier but accepted mm-hmm. to being um, an outlier but not accepted Hmm. in the Black community in North Carolina. And so that was always a really interesting uh, tension, if you will, right? There was a lot of, like, African booty scratcher jokes. And um, it was just – it was a very interesting time for me. And that was kind of the rise of the the – donate a dollar a day to these poor kids in Africa commercials. And so I was, I had always just been like, I'm not African. I'm not African. I know my Mm. name is different, but, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm one of you guys Mm. and spent so much time trying to fit in Mm. when I should have been nurturing Mm. the anomaly. Right. Um, and so that was, uh, a lot of, my experience growing up, it was wrestling between these two worlds, right? These two experiences that I had where I was with nothing but white people and I was accepted. Mm. But then I, when I moved, I was with nothing but black people or people of color Mm. and I was rejected. And so um, that was kind of an interesting dichotomy for me growing up, which led to you know, a lot of challenges with my mom. I used to sneak mm. out of the house. I used to 
steal money from her. Mm. Um, and yeah, this was my mom as a single parent, right? Mm. She still had to hold down the fort and, and work 12 hours a day. Mm. Meanwhile, I was the one causing all of the trouble. Mm. So that's a, a little bit of, uh, of my, my growing up backstory. Mm. Wow. That's, that's, that's a, yeah, that's really interesting. So at what point do you think you accepted who you are and you stopped trying to blend in? I think, uh, so when I was maybe 12 or 13, or so my mom had entered me into a lottery for a um, for an arts school. This is a really well-known school in North Carolina in Durham called Durham School of the Arts. Mm. And um, I had been going to a middle school where I was starting to get into trouble. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Mm. And my mom was like, yeah, this is not going down. Mm. So she put me in the lottery. I got I ended up getting uh, uh, enrollment. Um, and I was put into this school. I was mm. torn away from my friends who I, you know, didn't really fit in with. Right. But mm. I wanted to be there yeah. to being um, being now thrown into the school with people who were weird. They were like, you know, staying after school to learn computer <laughs> or they were like doing pottery or mm. photography or mm. violin or cello or whatever. And I was like, y'all are, mm. y'all are really, this is, this is interesting, <laughs> but not in a good way. <laughs> and, you know, I had spent three years there and, um, what I had learned was that that school came in at the right time and it gave me permission mm. to be weird, to yes. be different. Yes. And, um, at that point, um, from that point, I started to embrace all of those weird, quirky things about me, right? Mm. I learned to play violin. I mm. learned to play piano. Mm. I did pottery. I did photography. Mm. I did all of the things that I would not have done had I been in the circle of friends that I was previously with. Mm. And so from that point, I left uh, when I was in, when I was going into the ninth grade, I left to go to a regular public school because I had um, gotten accepted to be a cheerleader mm. and run track. Mm. And in high school, uh, things changed, right? Even though I was not the most popular person, I was the person that could, I was transient. Mm. So I can move in between yes. different circles. I yes. could talk to different types of people. Yeah. And I was cool Mm. in that way like I wasn't ultra popular mm -hmm. people knew me they could have a conversation with me I talked to the jocks I talked to the people who were considered the nerds mm. I I talked to everybody mm. and um that equipped me it really mm -hmm. did it equipped mm -hmm. me to do um to do more of what I'm doing now mm -hmm. I didn't know it then mm -hmm. um but then it was further perpetuated when I went to college right and mm. everybody's trying to stand out in college <laughs> Right. It's like we spend so much time growing up trying to be the same person. Mm -hmm. But then we get to college and mm -hmm. we're like, that's a sham. Mm -hmm. That's whack. Mm -hmm. We need to find our own our own voice mm -hmm. and be who it is that God has created us to be. Yes. And so um, that's kind of the turning point was when I, I started going to that that middle school. Mm, mm. And it's interesting, you said when you got to high school, you were transient and you could move between different groups. And would you agree that it's probably having 
the background that you had, right? Um, being different and being accepted and being different and not or being the same and not being accepted and kind of learning to move between groups. Do you think that helped you in high school? Um, yes, it did. It's helped me in high school. It's helped me in life yes. just with my very random experiences yes. that I have. Yes. What I do have is a story to tell to somebody who needs to hear it. Absolutely. And that has been um, one of the greatest things, the greatest treasures I think that God has given me is mm. the ability to relate to different types of people mm. um, and to pull from my own story and my own circumstances mm. to be able to meet them where they are. Absolutely. And I, I look forward to talking about that in a little bit, because that's really amazing. The fact that you said that you have a story to tell people who want to hear it or need to hear it. And I think that's an important point. You talked about your single mom. Um, did she ever, I, I guess, you know, working so hard and nurturing you, bringing you up the way you, you are and working really hard. Did she sort of explain to you maybe what part of Igbo land you're from? Did you have any kind of that foundation? Have you been back to Nigeria? Talk us a little bit. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So um, I had always known that I was, from Nigeria mm -hmm. always my uncle first came over when I was maybe five six or so maybe a little bit younger mm -hmm. and he was fresh off the boat right <laughs> even in his parenting style because we got the brunt of that right Nigerian men who don't interact with children yeah. when they interact with children the first time it's like whoa yeah. you don't talk to a child like that you don't spank them like that just you know just teach them a little bit mold them a little bit and so I had always known my mom used to sing us Igbo melodies mm. Um, mm. Um, and my uh, uncle actually her brother the oldest uh, her oldest brother uh, actually died in a plane crash in 2001. Wow. I'm sorry, in, two th in the year 2000. Wow. And um, my mom and my uncle, who had been in the States at the time for a while, ended up traveling back mm. to, um, to Nigeria. Mm. And she had taken video footage and mm. I remember her being gone and it was all of a sudden real, right? Mm. You, your parents are gone to this faraway place and you don't know this is before, not before the internet, but right. before you, you know, you were really able to, to deeply communicate mm -hmm. with people and see where they were. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd always known my mom, mm -hmm. she didn't raise us speaking Igbo, which mm -hmm. is one of her, I think, biggest uh, regrets actually. Mm -hmm. But at the time, mm -hmm. she didn't have the resources, exactly. right? She was working seven to <laughs> exactly. seven. Yeah. And we were going to an American school and mm -hmm. we were in an all white town. Mm -hmm. There was nowhere mm -hmm. that we would have we would have learned mm -hmm. to speak mm -hmm. Igbo and retain it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, sometimes even when we go back to the village, when we go back to Nigeria, mm -hmm. um, some people who don't know will try and give her a hard time. But, mm -hmm. you know, she's just like, listen. Mm. At the time wh when they were growing up, mm. I, I, my focus was on being able to provide yeah. for them and not to be in a, you know, in a shelter mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so language came 
um, at, at, a, at a cost. Mm. And, you know, my grandmother doesn't speak any English. Mm. Um, and so I cannot communicate with her. Mm. I can only communicate with her small things, yeah. but I have to have my cousins translate what mm. she's, what she's saying. And mm. I, she's, she's, she told me a couple years ago, um, that her biggest regret is my grandmother who's 90. Her mm. biggest regret is not learning English mm. so that she can communicate Aww. with us. And that made me really sad because oh. Igbo is a hard language. It is. It's a hard language. It is. Um, it is. And I've always had it on my list mm. to, to learn. Mm. But in, when I, when I think about it and I think about the maintenance of it and who I would speak it with, um, mm. I don't have other than my mom, mm-hmm. I don't have anybody who would hold me mm-hmm. to continuing to speak and learn the language. Yeah. So that's been a barrier for me. But I've been back several mm-hmm. times. I went back uh, last month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a place that I'm learning mm-hmm. and loving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a part of the tapestry, you know, it's yes. a part of the history. Part of the tapestry. I love it. And kudos to your mom, because to your point, you're trying to, she's trying to raise you, trying to survive and provide, but still instilled in you that sense of belonging to the point where you have that curiosity and on your own, you travel back to Nigeria and you've met your grandmother and all the rest of it. So it's still a celebration. It's still part of the tapestry, as you so well put it. So uh, kudos to your mom. Kudos. So yes, kudos, mama. Yes. And obviously (laughs) she had a huge impact on your life, which um, maybe we'll talk about a little bit as well. But I know that you, you, you know, I, I obviously did a little bit of reading about you, Zim, and I know that you studied biology in college. Talk to us a little bit about gene cloning. You talked about that in your biography. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So um, I was I was 19 at the time and I was fresh in college and uh, science was a degree that my mom said I should get. Mm. So I was like, okay, mommy, all, all Nigerians know <laughs> that there are the four things that you can be, right? Doctor, <laughs> lawyer, engineer, failure. And my mom was not going out. She was not going out like that. She was like, girl, you better get this biology degree so you can be a doctor. I have... I have no brain to think. My brain was her brain. So I was like, yes, mommy. Of course. Going, going. <laughs> and so I had um, I had gone and walked around the biology building just, you know, freshman year, just walking around. And I see this opportunity to be a lab assistant mm-hmm. um, and to work in a lab. And I'm like, oh, that could be interesting, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I ended up finding my... Um, my mentor, who I was with the, my entire college career, which mm-hmm. is five years, mm-hmm. and um, I we had done a lot of genetic uh, genetics research together. So he uh, was he worked with a lot of fruit flies, and so um, when we were doing gene cloning work, we were working with fruit flies. And so we were, it was, it was a wild, <laughs> wild roller coaster ride. But my first year we'd worked together to clone this gene. Mm. And I, um, the, the, the gene is CG16975. How I remember that, <laughs> I don't know. Probably because I said it so many times. <laughs> but if you Google that gene, my name will pop up, oh. his name will pop up. Ooh. And um, it was, uh, a really special time my freshman year and mm. 
because of that, the university took notice, right? Mm -hmm. So I would travel to these conferences and talk and Mm -hmm. I became this beacon for the university Mm -hmm. and they were, I mean, it opened so many doors Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. I got really close to the equivalent of the press office of a university. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I had things come up, or whenever I, you know, I just built a really solid relationship mm. with that with that team. And mm. they always looked after me, the chancellor's office, they always looked after me mm. in mm. whatever and whatever I did. Mm. And so it, it kind of all started, everything started by being curious and walking mm. into that building and seeing what opportunities mm. um, I could be a part of. Mm. It, yeah. And as I, you know, as I talk to you, you've had you have like you you said at the beginning you have you have a story to tell you've had all these different experiences which seem like they're I don't know if the word is random on their own but because um you can kind of see the way that God has stitched your life together to the point that you are at now you know and you know yeah you started off with such an adventurous childhood and you are where you are today and every every experience just seems so different but it's all come together really nicely, which is uh, which yeah. is great. And and just one more experience before we kind of talk about what you're doing now. I I was really curious because your biography said that you became the youngest precinct judge in North Carolina. How does that work? Did you go to law school? How did that happen? No, no, no. So I another thing that I did when I was in college was I got uh, really involved with the election board. Hmm. And I, we had a precinct on campus, G45. That was a precinct, G45. And I started working there my freshman year. Hmm. And they would appoint people to be precinct judges or higher. And that essentially was a rank hmm. in the polling system, if you will. So hmm. it just, it kind of, um, it, it was kind of pegged to your roles and responsibilities of that polling location. And Mm. so for me, nobody cared about the elections. I mean, it was, it was a crazy time being there Mm. when president Obama was elected. Right. Mm. Cause that was the, that was the most electrifying time Mm -hmm. to be on a campus Mm -hmm. and to see voter turnout. Mm -hmm. Cause up until that point, I mean, I started working, with the polls in 2006 or 2007 Mm -hmm. up until that point the municipal elections nobody cared i mean this is a college campus right you basically we sat there and waited uh, for nobody to show up for some of these elections right um but that title was directly correlated to the roles and responsibilities that i had Mm -hmm. over the polling place Ah. and so a lot of people will like look at that and they'll say like oh you were judged (laughs) and you did all this and you went to law school and you had no 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 it wasn't that it was it was an honor obviously Mm -hmm. to be appointed and selected at such a young age of course um but it was um you know it was just a list of some of the things that i had in my curiosity yeah. gotten into another yeah. random yeah. <laughs> a random thing that I <laughs> yeah. uh, that I found myself in right another random piece of the puzzle right so you right. know yeah there's just so much to talk about Zim you know obviously you're such an interesting person so tell us 
Talk us through that point to what led you to starting Travel Noir. Talk us through that journey. Yeah. So um, I had stayed at college uh, for five years. So I was a super senior because I loved classes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, acting class. Great. Oh, my gosh, planting class. Awesome. I love it. And I did it. I just was taking all of these really interesting classes. And um, that delayed my graduation time, obviously. And Mm. so I had done a lot of um, internships over the summer in different places. I did an internship in D.C. I worked Mm. with the National Science Foundation. Mm. I did an internship in uh, San Francisco and I worked organizing churches in the Fillmore. Mm. And um, so I had all of these experiences, these random experiences, Mm. but I didn't have any mm. international context, mm. any international experience. Mm. And I, the only time that I had been out of the country was with my mom mm. and my brother to Nigeria mm. when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And so I had um, found, so so in between that time, I'd started an organization to open a civil rights museum. And I was working mm. with my best friend um, to manage an anti-tobacco organization. So we were traveling all over the country talking to young people. I mean, we were in Nebraska, we were in Alaska, we were everywhere talking to young people mm-hmm. about tobacco. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had all these experiences in different places in the U.S., no international context. Mm-hmm. So I had bought this book called um, Delaying the Real World by Colleen Kinder. Mm-hmm. And I looked through it and um, I had... I was looking for an international experience. This was like my first senior year, the, f- the fourth year. <laughs> yes. um, and I was like, okay, where can I go? Cause mm. I'll do anything. Mm. I'll work on a farm. Mm. I will, you know, I will, you know, operate hot air balloons, mm. whatever. I'm like interested in an international experience. Mm. And I stumbled across this program called the loose scholars program. Hmm. And uh, the loose scholars program is a program of the Henry loose, found- uh, Henry loose, foundation hmm. uh henry loose is the founder of time magazine yes. um sports illustrated yeah. he he grew up in china his parents were missionaries mm. and when he came back he realized how important his time overseas mm. his time in china was to his publishing career so when he died built this foundation and the foundation um currently focuses on bridging the gap between Asia and America. Hmm. And so they have this program called the Loose Scholars Program where they send 15 to 18 young people under 30 in various different fields Hmm. to countries in Asia, any country that they choose. Hmm. And so I applied to this program and it was the most rigorous application process Hmm. that I had ever experienced before in my life Hmm. um, because it forced me to take all of my life experiences and make sense of them. Mm. Up until that point, I was doing all of the random things, Mm -hmm. not really thinking about how Mm -hmm. they tied together. Mm -hmm. But this application process Mm. forced me to sit down and say, okay, Mm. so these are the things that I did. Here are the common threads. Mm. This is why I need international context to continue to do the things that I'm doing, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I found out that I, um, got into that program um, the about four months, four or five months before I was going to graduate college. <laughs> and so um, 
up until that point, I didn't know what I was going to do mm. after graduating. I had no plans, <laughs> typical to Zim fashion, no, no, nothing lined up, nothing. And so uh, when I found out that happened, I was like, excellent. Mm. This is when like there were awards. I was getting awards for different things for my work with the museum mm. and anti-tobacco work and all the other mm. stuff. And suddenly I had this interesting thing mm. in front of me mm. and I'd worked so hard to get it. And mm. now it's finally here. Yes. What am I going to do? Right. So I chose India as mm. a country mm. to live in. Um, and so up until graduation, um, I was the commencement speaker. Wow. I was kind of just like preparing myself mm -hmm. to go to this. I'd only gone left the country one time mm -hmm. and I'm now going to India that I know nothing about. Mm. I've never had Indian food before. <laughs> I, what am, what's happening. Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, I left in at the end of June, we left. Um, and there were 17 of us mm. who went to different places, uh, around the region, around Asia. Mm. And there I was this black girl mm. with, poetic justice braids <laughs> in the middle of New Delhi. Wow. I had one other girl who chose India with me, but she was in New Delhi while I was working in Bangalore. Mm -hmm. And so I was really on my own. I mean, mm. the program has a lot of support, which was very helpful. Mm. Um, so I wasn't necessarily worried there, but even right. though you have support it doesn't necessarily mean everything is going to be easy. Exactly. And so while I was in India, I did a lot of solo travel. I learned how to speak Hindi. I learned how to read wow. and write. Wow. And I can still to this day, which has been such a blessing, but I used those skills to travel. Mm. I lived on a train for some time. I had visited almost 90% of the territories in India. Wow. I was a very adventurous soul. Mm. I was somebody who, if, if, college were a t-shirt or, or a towel or, and mm. it was wet mm. I wrung out yes. every last bit of water yes. out of my college experience mm -hmm. and I did the same thing for my India experience mm -hmm. I was like I'm leaving no stone mm -hmm. unturned yes. um, I had lived in New Delhi and Bangalore and then I moved up to the base of the Himalayan mountain range and worked up there for a little bit and mm. I was just I was just everywhere. I, I sit back now and I'm like, girl, you were crazy <laughs> back then. You was just doing all all of these things, getting mm. on these buses and riding mm. for twelve hours and wow. that was just like that was my life. Wow. And I while I was living on this train, I had um thought to myself there, there were two other black people mm. on the train. It was mm. like this, this two week, uh, like program that we had done called the Jagriti Yatra Awakening Journey, mm -hmm. travel around, um, pan India. And every single day, every morning you stop and you shadow a social entrepreneur, somebody who wow. is seeking to change right. the face of India. Right. And I thought to myself, I'm having all these experiences. I'm able to buy a flight on Air Asia for $8 mm. and fly from Bangalore to Kuala Lumpur, mm. Malaysia, mm. and then go anywhere in Asia I want to mm. for mad cheap. I mm. mean, I like $8 mm. flights, $50 yes. flights. Yeah. Um, and 
there's nobody talking about this, mm. right? Like people are, I'm having all these crazy yes. experiences, these humbling experiences mm-hmm. in different countries. Mm-hmm. And whenever I tell people that I know, they're like, oh yeah, okay, mm-hmm. that's cool. $50 mm-hmm. flights, don't believe it. Yeah. And yeah. so I thought to myself, what, it, what would it look like or what could it look like if I had other, I had a community of, of people of color um, who talked about their experiences mm. while traveling. Mm. What what could that mm. look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sat on the idea, traveled throughout Asia, backpacked, um, and then I ended up landing back in um, California. Mm-hmm. Broke as a joke, <laughs> had no money, because I spent it all traveling. And uh, I was at my mom's house. Mm. Every day she would come in and be like, so you're going to sign up for this post-bac program, get the rest of those credits for biology so you can become a nurse or a doctor. doctor. I'm like, all right, mom, I don't want to. Every day, six months, I would apply for jobs, get Mm. rejection after rejection Mm. after rejection. Mm. Until Mm. one day I had a friend, uh, older lady who Mm. was uh, on the board of the organization that I worked for when I was organizing in San Francisco. Mm. And she said, I got a couch. You're more than welcome to stay on it. Mm. I'm in San Francisco. You're welcome anytime. Mm. And I took that as my sign to get out. I was like, I love you, mom. I got to go. I had $300 in my bank account and I took a bus, a Greyhound bus up to California. And I lived on that couch Mm. in her place for six months. Mm. I had four jobs. Mm. I was tired all the time. I mm. lost a lot of weight because mm. I have no money. I had a $3 a day budget. I mean, mm. it was, there were some interesting days. Yeah. Um, mm. And uh, it wasn't until I got a full-time job. I ended up getting a full-time job about seven months after I, I um, moved to San Francisco. Mm. And in August, I started travel noir Mm. and I started it in my bedroom in the Mm. bedroom of my apartment and um I had 50 bucks uh Mm. for for the um the theme the website theme Mm. and the url Mm. and I started there I had no idea what I was doing Mm. no uh no business experience Mm. whatsoever um what I did have was grit and I had a story to tell and Mm. I knew other people who had stories Mm. to tell. Mm. And so that was the journey to, to starting travel noir. Mm. Mm. Wow. (laughs) It was a lot. lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good wow though. It's like a really good wow. So tell us what did, um, or what does travel noir do? Explain what it did at the time that you, you founded it. What was it designed? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, um, we were on this mission to change, the definition of the international traveler, right? Mm-hmm. So the international traveler for a lot of companies and countries was white, a white mm-hmm. woman, blonde hair, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to show people who a uh, people of color that mm-hmm. you, in order to take a vacation, you don't have to 
save for a year. Yes. You don't have to take one vacation every two years. Yes. In fact, you should take more than one vacation a year. Yes. And here's how you do it. You don't need yes. to spend all of your money. Mm. You can travel. You can go to places. Mm. You can find flights mm. for under $500. You can mm. have an amazing experience for mm. under $1,000. Mm. There are just so many ways to travel and experience mm. the world. And we did that at first through master classes. We did a lot of teaching, mm. right? And then we had um, a platform for people to connect, and that was called the district. Mm. And then we had we launched Travel Noir Experiences, and these were seven day, six night curated um, group experiences that focused on not seeing monuments, but experiencing <laughs> uh, experiencing people and their yes. culture. And so. Yes where a lot of group tours would go and they would actually show you sites so that you can get out and take photos. Mm. We would actually opt to have a story told from the people who had experienced it. Wow. And so our experiences were very different. They introduced mm. a tension that I think has to exist in travel and order and in life really in yes. order to be transformed. Yes. So how could we bring transformation into the, the travel experience wow. that would leave the people who joined the trip changed and mm. transformed. Mm. How could that, how could we do that? And I mm. pulled from my uh, experiences in India, how there was always this, this tension um, of being another person in mm. India, right? Mm. You were always being stared at. You were always mm. being, you had always had, you had to haggle your whole life away. Mm. And so how could we introduce that tension? Mm. Um, we started with physical activities. So mm. in Cape town, for instance, um, we had our folks climb table mountain from bottom to top. That's about 3000 something feet. Wow. And in addition to doing that, we had some really interesting hard conversations in Cape Town. Mm. If you've been to Cape Town, you know that there's still a lot of race things mm -hmm. that happen there. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of going to Robben Island, instead of mm -hmm. going to some of these places, mm -hmm. why don't we spend a day in Langa? Yeah. Why don't we go, go and sit at somebody's house while mm. they cook for us wow. or cook with us? Yes. Why don't we learn about, um, learn about the food, learn mm. about the tribe? Why don't we, mm. why don't we do more of that mm. and so with those trips there was always a private photographer that accompanied them mm -hmm. and um, this was so that people could put their phones down mm. and focus more on the moment yes and being yes. in the moment yeah uh, and we our trips one of our promises was transformation if you're at a place in mm. your life where you need to make a decision. You're at a point of transition. Mm. Just sit back, come back, come on, come on this trip, mm. sit back. We're going to handle everything. And mm. by the time you finish, you will know mm. what steps you need to take to move forward. Amazing. And so th that was, that was, that was what TN did. We did a mm. lot of that. We did mm. content and all that, but our experiences mm. were our, our bread and butter. Wow. And I read somewhere, Zim, that it took you 18 months before you even started to make any money. What kept yeah, you going? So <laughs> Go we, um, for 18 months, we didn't run, we did, we weren't running trips. So for those mm. 18 months, we were just doing uh, the master classes, mm -hmm. the content, mm -hmm. which had a very 
obviously a very, very low cost. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was just living off of my savings. Yeah. So um, it wasn't, I mean, it was only a, I mean, it was a challenge when we wanted to scale and we needed to make money Mm -hmm. because then we had to hire people Mm -hmm. and yada, yada, yada. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a really interesting challenging challenging time Mm, yeah mm, mm. it's interesting that you say you don't know because I can relate you know sometimes you go through a really challenging time and people ask how do you do it and you're like I don't know (laughs) it just yeah I don't know I just did it right so yeah wow that's great so you know you since sold the company tell us about that how did you know when it was time to sell yeah so my my answer for Selling TN is a spiritual answer. Um, I sold my company because God told me to sell it. Okay. Um, And for me, and I mean, in the Bible, half obedience is still disobedience, right? So if God's telling me to do something and I'm not doing it, Mm. then I'm I'm being disobedient. Mm. And so Mm. I knew that I didn't want to be the travel girl. That's not who I believe Mm. God is created me to be Mm. Uh, you know people would ask me all the questions about travel I was a travel expert Mm. that that was that was who I was but Mm. the reality is that's that's not what I was built for it was Mm. not what I was created Mm. for and so Mm. we got to a point in the business where I had gone to this conference and this preacher was uh preaching Mm. and he said um, that he had been consecrated to basketball. His name is uh, Victor Jackson, mm. Reverend Victor Jackson, but the Victor, Victor Jackson. Mm. And he had said that he um, was consecrated to basketball. Mm. He was very good at it. Mm. He was on the path to go to the NBA mm. and all the other stuff. And his call, his purpose in life was to be a minister, was to be a preacher. Mm. He was running away from it. And one of the things that he said was that the world tells us that success is about how much money you have, about Mm. how many cars you drive, Mm. how many houses you have. Mm. But success in the Bible is about what you're willing to give up Mm. and what you're willing to sacrifice. Mm. And so for me, my business was the sacrifice. Mm. It was a sacrifice. Mm. Um, And if we know anything about God, we know that he honors sacrifices. Mm. Hmm. And so I, it was the hardest thing that I had ever had to do because this business was my identity, right? It was like, who I was. Mm. I built this business as an extension of self. So mm-hmm. when it was mm. no longer there, mm. who, who was I, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and so that's kind of what led, that was like the, the, what happened throughout that time. And then after I sold, um, the company, I stayed on, uh, to transition the team and, mm. um, and, and teach people, teach the, the Blavity team, um, about TN, about our audience, about our, you know, all, all of the things that um, people had grown to love about about the brand. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just amazing. And you know, you talked about um, half obedience being disobedience. And it's so true. It's like, well, you could have said, well, what if I scale back? Or what if I bring on, yeah. some, you know, you could have kind of, 
lied to yourself in a way. Well, I'm really doing what God wants me to do, but you you wouldn't right. be, right? So I think that's right. a really important, really important point. I, I kind of want to say, ask you, I was going to ask you about your advice for people who want to travel to far-flung places, but I just think I should ask you, what's next for you? I know you have a Bloom podcast. Um, what are some of the things that you're thinking about next? Um, so, so yeah, so I have the Bloom podcast and I'm doing that and that's been such a blessing. So people, um, will, uh, ask questions about just general questions about their lives, mm-hmm. things that they're struggling with. Um, and I will take it and we'll go into the book. We'll go into the mm-hmm. word of God and see what God has to say. And I mm-hmm. always approach, um, these answers very carefully and I approach it with, um, my pastor's wife, uh, who looks over everything and makes sure mm. that, mm. you know, the things that I say, cause sometimes yeah. in our own advice, we mm. can, uh, come off harsh. Yes. Right. And, yes. and that's never yes. the, it's never the intention. It's mm. never God's intention. So mm. how, how can we do things and say things in love? And mm. so, um, the podcast is there for women who really want to, live um um on on god's terms they want to live in god's economy and Mm. they are actively striving and and pursuing christ so there's Mm. that's that um i have uh real estate i have a real Mm. estate company Mm. um i have i uh, just earlier last month i um i purchased um a small company um in uh, Korea. Hmm. And so I'm doing that and working on that Hmm. and just, you know, taking, taking everything day by day. Um, and I, you know, so that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm here and I am available to Hmm. be used by God. And and I wanted to make sure that I was preparing myself to be in position Hmm. for whatever it is that God God needs me to do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. I, you know, I I could ask you the question, what drives you? What do you live for? But it sounds like you've already answered that, right? You would say yeah. that you you're driven by the purpose that God has for you. That's what you wake up every day, making sure or working to make sure that you're in His will and doing what He would have you do. Um, so that's really really amazing. What advice do you have for the listeners? What would you, if someone was sitting in front of you today that had listened to this show and said, Zim, based on all your experiences, what advice would you give me? What would you say? Oh, gosh. That's such a hard question. <laughs> it's generic, but take it wherever That's you want. That's such, such a hard question. I think, um, I don't know, like people, people at the end of the day, people want to belong. And they want to belong somewhere. They want to belong with somebody. They want to belong with people. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I've learned is that it, having these moments where I've started over, started over, started over, mm. the sense of belonging every time you start over, it obviously shifts yeah. every time because mm. you're like, Oh, mm. I, you know, I'm an expat living mm. in India and yeah. then you're not. Yeah. And then what? Yeah. Or like, Oh, I'm so-and-so mm. living you know, in San Francisco doing this fancy job, whatever. Mm. And then you're that until you're not. Mm. And so we often 
who go and try and find our belonging and our identity in people and places and mm. things. Mm. When our identity is really in one thing mm. and we figure out the thing that we are meant to do and whatever shifts for us in our life mm. has no effect mm. on the thing that we're called to do. It mm. seems like very frou-frou yeah. and like kind of mm. out there, mm. but our lives are, everything changes, mm. everything changes. And if we are planting our banner mm. on sinking sand, mm. then all we do is pick up that banner every yeah. time yeah. we move yeah. and replant it in sinking sand and do the same thing throughout mm. our entire life. Mm. But mm. how awesome could it be if we're able to plant that banner mm. in something that is unshakable and something mm. that is immovable. Mm. And no matter what happens, no matter the storm, mm. no matter the rain or whatever, it's still there and it's still standing and it's still strong, mm. you know? Mm. Um, mm. And so that's, that's my, my advice, right? Like you, we know who our identity should be in yes right but oftentimes and it's and it's easy to say like oh yeah my my identity is in god yeah mm-hmm. that's easy to say mm-hmm. but when everything is moving when mm-hmm. you're about to you know you don't got no money for your apartment <laughs> or you can't afford x or mm-hmm. things are happening mm-hmm. this your car got towed and blah mm-hmm. blah blah and this that, and the third it's hard to believe that thing mm-hmm. it's very hard to believe mm-hmm. that thing mm-hmm. but i would encourage people and I encourage listeners that Mm. there is always room Mm. on that solid foundation Mm. for Mm. you to plant your banner wonderful what is your favorite book I know the bible of course but what other the bible (laughs) let me see uh what other books um I love the last lecture by Randy Pausch um, mm. all-time favorite book. Mm. I was gifted that book in college and mm. I read it in a day or two, mm. bawling my eyes out. I was in the mm. I was in the lab with my with my mentor and he was like, Girl, what is wrong with you? He didn't say it like that. He was like, right. I hear crying by the fruit flies. What are you doing? <laughs> and so that book is really, really, really special to wow. me. Um mm. Let me see. Outliers mm-hmm. is another one. Malcolm mm-hmm. Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I love that book. I mm-hmm. also read that one in college. Yeah, <laughs> I would say those two okay. are are the top. And I read okay. those. It's it's. I don't know. It's it's interesting because I read those two in college. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dang, Zim, have I not read any good books <laughs> since college? College mm-hmm. is like a whole eight years ago. Um, <laughs> But I mean, there are lots of good books. Yes. But these are the two that have been the most impactful. Yeah. Yeah. This has been amazing. You know, Zim, we could talk for hours and hours and (laughs) hours. (laughs) But I so appreciate you taking the time to spend a few minutes with us, just talking us through your journey. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, thank you so much. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you again. Could you tell that I wanted to keep chatting with Zim? But she's so busy, I had to be respectful of her schedule. This was an awesome discussion. In the show notes, I list the books that Zim recommended. To access the show notes, please visit the website www.theebo.com. 
What did you think of this episode? I would really love to hear from you. You can leave a rating in Apple Podcasts or drop me a note at ugochi at theebo.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Ibo Initiative. In the next episode, I talk to a lady about her brave adventures through the Middle East. You won't want to miss it. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.